Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Armin Vardayan. Vardanyan, <laughs> sorry. Vardanyan. Yes, Vardanyan, yeah. yeah. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about the ESLint plugin for NGRX. And you've you've done some work on that, right, Armin? Yeah, I have uh, worked together with uh, Team Deshriver, who is from the core team of NGRX. He developed that plugin, and lots of rules were missing their documentation pages. So we worked together, and I wrote some of the rules. So part of the documentation was on me. And of course, I'm using that uh, in my day-to-day job a lot. It's really helpful. Cool. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, how much validation do you have to do for uh, NGRX? What kind of rules are there and, and what kinds of things does it have to do? Surprisingly, turns out a lot. Oh, really? Yeah. I was, when I, when I started doing the documentation pages, I was, in fact, not using the, the plugin for myself. Uh-huh. Uh, I was just looking for opportunities to contribute to some open source projects. So I, I asked him if there was anything I could contribute to NGRX. And he said that actually they have this plugin and lots of rules are missing their doc pages. So I started talking with him about which rule meant what and started documenting. So it's like neat pages where there is an example of the incorrect usage for that particular rule and then how you're supposed to do the correct usage. And most of that revolves around the actual uh, best practices of NGRX. So it's so it's not just kind of looking at how you style your code, but it actually helps you maintain like clean approaches and not use like approaches that are not that are not really good, like dispatching several actions in a row that is considered a bad practice. So this linting plugin also looks for stuff like that and also has a fixer that kind of helps to uh, eradicate some of the errors automatically. So I discovered that it has around like 20 rules and most of them refer to like stuff like naming. And also there is this rule called action hygiene. Uh, there was an interesting, there was an interesting talk by, uh, if I remember correctly, by Mike Ryan. He told, it was titled like that, so like action hygiene in NGRX. And it was all about how it is important to have like normal names, like uh, that adequately describe the actions that we dispatch. And it also suggested 
and it's the usual pattern in NGRX that when we provide an action type, like for example, there is something like load uh, user list, for example, you shouldn't just put that into the action tab, but also in square brackets, you will have the source of that action, something like user list component or user list API, depending from wherever that action is expected to be dispatched. And it turns out it's really helpful because let's say you have a bug on, on some action gets dispatched in the wrong place, and there's a new developer who is not familiar with the code base, they would now have to spend some time looking where where and where exactly this one particular action has been dispatched. But if you have read Redux DevTools, you will just see the the name of action and the source of action like immediately. You know that this is the particular component or this is coming from the API. So I only should take a look at the effects classes to find wherever the wrong dispatch action came from. So that was one rule that I uh, knew existed, but I didn't know that we can kind of automate checking for it. So uh, always in the pull request, I was looking for, oh, you did, did forget to provide the source of this action or something like that. It turns out you can just automate it using uh, uh, the linting plugin. And there have been actually rules that have been uh, very helpful, even catching bugs which was also unexpected for me. Usually when we talk linters, we think that it will just, you know, fix some style, maybe introduce some uh, sort of consistency in the code. We don't think like fixing bugs, right? But there was this rule that requires when, when we use the, uh, when we write a reducer and use the on function, it gets a callback, uh, just like in usual Redux with the state and the action and stuff. So this rule demands that you explicitly mentioned the return type of the uh, callback function that you provide. So essentially, it's always the same. Like you return, let's say, the application state, right? You have an interface. You always return the application state. So what's interesting about this is the types that can infer some of the types, but only to an extent. So when we provide a callback that actually doesn't return the same state interface, let's say it adds some property to it, like that wasn't defined on the original state interface. TypeSoup won't complain about it because it thinks, yeah, okay, you transform the state from something to something. It's just a callback function right. to whatever you return. It's okay. So essentially, when I when I used that rule on one of our projects, it turned out that somewhere deep in the reducer, someone forgot a comma when destructuring an array. And it turned oh, out no. that instead, yeah, and it turned out that instead of adding the, the payload of the action to an array, they added that to the returned object. So it thought, oh, so, no. so TypeScript thought that we are adding a property called payload with the value of payload on the state, which doesn't exist. And no one caught that. No one thought that it, it, it was just more mechanical when you're writing a reducer. You think it's, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So when it, so when it required me to put the return type, I put the, the, like the application state or whatever state I had. And mm -hmm. that's it went like, yeah, this function isn't working like that. You have, you have a problem there. And there were like actually two places when we had issues like that. So. Right. Normally, you don't expect a linter to help you find something like that. And some of the rules initially may feel like not really useful. Like in that case, uh, when I encountered that rule for the first time, I thought, yeah, you know, it's just an overkill. It's just an overkill. Like, 
I, essentially, every time I'm returning the state, I'm copying the state, I'm, I'm, I'm changing some property. It should, should not be a big deal. Or why should I write it? But uh, of course, uh-huh. perfectionism in the end took over. I, I thought, yeah, there is this rule. Let's just add the return tab. And when I added the return tab, here, here it goes. The surprise. Now we have a problem. It turns out our reducer didn't work as we have intended. So it's really interesting to find out that uh, <laughs> eventually, yeah, this, this this plugin helped to actually find a problem instead of just you know improving code right. quality. Uh, some uh, other very useful thing that I encountered was also something that initially I thought that you know this is useless, but it turned out that it's, that it's actually covering for some small but really irritating issue of TypeScript. So whenever we are creating effects using the, the create effect function, what we usually do, we provide a callback that mm-hmm. returns a subscription to like an, an observable that subscribes to the actions subject. We receive an action, then we use uh, some operators to map it to another action, maybe do an HTTP call, whatever. So usually we do it, do it in a sort of a one-liner. So we don't use a block scope, right? We just write some callback, the arrow, and something like these actions, pipe, and whatever. We don't write like a block scope and then return these actions, pipe, the same thing. But it seems like more intuitive. Like Why, why do we need to write a block scope function with, with brackets? We could just use the arrow, the usual arrow function. And then there's this rule that uh, demands that you use uh, the the scope function. And initially I thought, like, what's the, what's the big deal about it? And it turns out when, when we use a kind of callback inside of a callback, like we use a callback for the create effect and then we use the, the pipe function with operators, which also in turn have callbacks. So in this level of nested like callbacks, TypeScript becomes really bad at inferring the type if it is not in a block scope function, which it can determine separately. So if you put it in a block scope function, it, it interprets it as like a separate command. So it doesn't interpret it like being too nested and it guesses the type correctly. So if you have a type problem, like say, for example, you are making an HTTP call that returns an interface A, but you are dispatching an action that expects something like uh, interface B, which is something that occurs fairly regularly. Like we can mess up the action, maybe maybe put another action that we didn't want initially, or maybe we are using the wrong HTTP call, just some intelligence brought up some method and didn't notice that we used the wrong one. If we don't use the block scope function, TypeScript will give a really messy error, something like observable of this, of this, 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 lots of generic is not assignable to something, something, something. And it's really hard to kind of infer what the hell just happened. But when you use the, the block scope function approach, like write, write something like <laughs> arrow, a block bracket, and then return these actions type, it just infers it with no problems. So if you put something wrong, we'll just say, well, here is expected like interface A, you provide B, and you will immediately find uh, the spot. Like it will, it will like redline the, the exact line where that happens instead of just making all the effects like red and saying some very weird stuff. So it really is uh, helpful. So I don't uh, really most of the rules that I have used there just ended up being so useful that really when you just use this plugin. In like 90 to 95% of the cases, you don't have to worry about best practices because 
like Angelic is this big ecosystem that has in itself it's lots of code, it's lots of boilerplate, but but it's large. You have effects, you have reducers and store dispatching actions and, and so on and so on. Uh, so, of course, it has best practices, but most of those best practices are really mechanic. Uh, so, to put it into perspective, like, say we have an Angular application. So, in an Angular application, we usually have, have some approaches that are fairly understandable to a human, like the container presenter pattern, right? It's something that lots of Angular developers know and use, and something that is really more or less simple to explain and understand. But it's something that the computer would have a hard time understanding. So we cannot just write a linter rule that will determine that this component is mixing presentational logic and business logic. So please separate it into two components. We can't just have a linting rule for that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe something like, maybe we can have like for some other rules, like, like using functions in the templates. Uh, like methods in the template, which is for most of the cases expected to avoid that. But sometimes that is something that can be needed. So go around like ignoring stuff and whatever. So some of the rules are not really rigid and are not really mechanical. So we cannot just automate them using the linter. But in NGRX turned out most of the best practices are really kind of mechanical. And even if fixing them is not mechanical, uh, I will provide an example for that. But at least like catching them, like, you know, here, you are doing something that is not really appreciated. So uh, please try to do this using this approach and so on. Yeah, I mentioned uh, the plugin has also a fixer. So some of the rules, for example, the, the block scope function with the return, it's a fixable rule. So you don't need to go around changing your effect. Just run ng-lint fix. It will fix those kinds of errors automatically. But some, of course, are not fixable. And uh, the two biggest ones that uh, lots of uh, developers using NGRX tend to uh, kind of get wrong is you are not supposed to use combined latest the RxJS operator on NGRX streams. And the other one is that you are not supposed to dispatch uh, two actions in a row. Uh, those two are both are violations. Uh, the first one is less abstract. The idea is that if you have to select two different things from the store and use combine latest to kind of combine them and get a uh, like double value, the thing is you just can't combine the selectors using the create selector function. Let's say you need the user the list of the users and also the list of some orders they make to combine them and make them to something else, right? So if, if you are thinking just pure RxJS, Sure, we would combine those streams, then use the map operator, do something, return a new value, which works, of course. But uh, then our component becomes larger, and we don't just see what data we receive. We have to infer it from the operators that have been used and mm-hmm. stuff. Instead, we can just create another named selector, like name it uh, like uh, users with orders or something that is more like understandable, and use the create selector function. Uh, that NGRX provides. The create selector function is, is, is the greatest thing that there is in NGRX. You can just, you can just plug several named selectors into it. Like in our case, we can take the users, the orders, or the other selectors. And then, uh, as the last argument, we can provide a callback, which will, uh, as arguments, receive the values of the selectors we provided. And then whatever that last callback is returned, 
will be the value of the new selector that we are creating. So we're kind of combining several selectors. It was also interesting, they're introducing a new function that actually does the same thing. They are calling it combined selectors, so it's also more uh, understandable. The first time I discovered that there's this thing we can use create selector to combine selectors, actually. Mm -hmm. I thought that if this was called combined selectors, I would have known that (laughs) earlier. So they have introduced also a new function, and that is what they suggest you to do. You don't, you don't use combined latest. Also, you don't use, you don't, you're not supposed to call uh, the pipe method on anything you selected from the store and mm. use mop or whatever. You can, again, for those intents, you can just use the create selector and do whatever you need there. So that is one thing that the linter has a specific rule for and did. Uh, and it catches it really well. And it's like, yeah, you, you're not supposed to do that. You can use a name selector, just select whatever. Uh, value you need. If you, if you remember when we were, to- we were talking with, uh, Thomas Tryan about, uh, RHGS, uh, you remember that episode? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He mentioned he was using that create selector to kind of combine everything that one component needs into one, one big selector and just take it and use the async pipe once uh, in the template. So when you start doing things like that, it becomes really easy, and uh, this rule kind of forces that you don't use combined latest, you use uh, you use create selector to do that, and it's, it really clears up lots of code that doesn't really belong in a component. And the other one I mentioned is a more abstract one, uh, that you're not supposed to dispatch two, uh, two actions in a row, which again, the first time I saw, I thought that, you know, why, why do we need this rule? Why, why, why is this a good rule? But then when I, when I started using it, when I started thinking more in the terms of what NGRX is intended, is intending for you how to use it, the general idea is that you usually don't do imperative commands in NGRX. In most cases, you're not doing like, load this data or delete this data. There are cases, some of the actions are supposed to be commands, like remove some data or toggle some state or whatever. But most of the actions in the NGRX are actually supposed to be events in the sense that, you know, something happened in the application, so let's load some data maybe in the effect. What I was doing before I learned about this rule was that Say I have a component and it needs uh, three different pieces of data from three different APIs. So what I did was I wrote three actions like load this data, load other data, load first data, something like that. And I would dispatch them in the engine in its method of the component. And in the effects, I would just write effects for each specific different action. And then I understood that it was kind of not explicit when we think about it from the perspective of the effects. Because in the components, we don't really need to uh, see the actions to know what data we get. We can see the, the data that we get when we look at, take a look at the selectors, right? We don't really need to see that this component demands that we load that data and that data and that data. That's a logic that the component doesn't really concern itself with. It just says that I am here, I need this data, I select from the store 
let me just display it in the UI. But from the perspective of the effect, when I see that there is an effect that is reacting to an action that is called, say, load user list, mm-hmm. I may I may think that that effect is working from the user list component, for example. But the reality is that that action can be also dispatched from somewhere else, right? So there is no way of really knowing to what scenarios would this effect really be triggered by. So what NGRX suggests is that if you need different kind of actions, you just create one kind of an abstract action that notifies of an event, something like user list component loaded or mounted mm-hmm. or something, whatever. So we kind of tell the store that, you know, this component is here, it's now in the DOM, so please act accordingly, like find whatever data that it might need. And then we use the same action to create effects so that NGRX subscribes to that action and loads three different pieces of data. And in that case, we'll have a situation that when we look at the effect, we will instantly know from where this can be triggered. So if we have another component that also needs the user list, for example. It won't be dispatching the same action. It will be dispatching the action that, I, I don't know, say the orders component or the to-do list component also loaded. So when, when we look at the effect, we will see that, oh, the user li- the, the load user list effect is triggered when this component and also this component in different scenarios may be triggered. So it becomes really obvious to what it happens. And it also forces you to map a effect to one single effect again, instead of like sometimes right. uh, when uh, people want to uh, trigger several other effects, they will just use switch map and provide an array of actions, which NGRX actually says, you know, that's not a good idea. Just dispatch one event mm-hmm. uh, saying that this data has been loaded and wherever you need uh, to trigger some effect, there you subscribe to that action. So instead of dispatching multiple actions, you listen to multiple actions if that is needed. And that really makes the the code for effects really explicit. Like you never have a problem of understanding when and how that stuff works. Uh, So that is, again, again, it's being checked by the rule. Of course, it's a very abstract rule. So the linter obviously cannot fix that for you. But in most cases, it can be really easily fixed. Most cases, you don't need any data with the action. You just need to say that you know, something happened. And uh, in the end, the, the logic that you write there will just handle that. In most cases, just boilerplate. You need to regroup it in a way. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you ready for core web vitals? Fortunately, Raygun can help. These modern performance metrics play an important role in determining the health of your website which is why Raygun has baked them directly into their real user monitoring tools. Now you can see your core web vital scores are trending across your entire website in real time and drill into individual pages to focus your efforts on the biggest performance gains. Unlike traditional tools, Raygun surfaces real user data, not synthetic, giving you greater insights and control. Filter your score by time frame, browser, device, geolocation, whatever matters to you most. And what makes Raygun truly unique is the level of detail they provide so you can take action. Quickly identify and resolve front-end performance issues with full waterfall breakdowns, user session data, instance-level diagnostics of every page request, and a whole lot more. Visit raygun.com today and take control of your core web vitals. Plans start from as little as $8 per month. That's raygun.com for your free 14-day trial. So, so yeah, so the linter catches all this stuff and says, hey, this stuff, 
you can do this, but not a great idea. You ought to do it this other way. And then, yeah, just like anything else in ESLint, you know, you can kind of put a flag around it and say, yeah. hey, well, in this case, I have a good reason for it. So ignore it. Right. Yeah, it actually also it works with the RxJS recommended settings on ESLint. There, there is a package. I believe they come together. Um, uh, well, one is dependency for another. I, um, you also can turn on and off some rules. One rule I never use, and I actually disagree with. Maybe they again will prove me wrong, and I will see how I, I was. Uh, not correct about this, but they suggest that all the selectors start with the word select, which I don't like because on the store injected reference, I usually call this.store.select. And then when I provide the argument, it, it should again say select. It kind of feels unnatural mm-hmm. for me that it will go something like this store select, select users. So instead, I just name the, the selectors as the data that they are selecting. So if I'm using, if I'm selecting the uh, to-do list, then I will just name it to-do list. So my selectors in the component will just read something like this store select user list or whatever. I That was a relatively new rule. So I didn't write the documentation for that. And I believe the existing documentation just just uh, says that, you know, you know, just prefix all the all the selectors with the word select. But again, I think it's a more a personal kind of preference i don't think it it changes much in the sense of like it's not it's not exactly the same as the other rules that we have mentioned right and i also turned off the rxjs rule for not using unsafe switch and switch map because but that was like project specific because uh in our project we have lots of streams that kind of wait for each other uh, there are situations that say one action is this pushed but you kind of have to wait until some other data is present in the store, but you don't have to like stop the the action, but you you need to pause that mm-hmm. like until you can like, until the other data is available. So the only way you can really do that is with the switch map, because if you use right. if you use, yeah if you use any other option for that, you will you won't have cancelable calls in a sense if, if there is that action dispatch again it will throw away the previous one but usually in the scenarios the effect is not that's not what you would want to have so right because we use switch map because of exactly what you do um we had to just turn, turn that rule off because uh for just mapping the actions to like http calls, we always use either merge map or exhaust map depending on the situation but if you are waiting for some other data and not uh and just switching over if the the action arrives again in, in some scenario then we have to use the switch map so again um the whole the whole idea behind is is you can just you know, use whatever rules you want. Some might not suit you. Maybe you don't want to spend time on writing like this action type names that are very explicit or mention anything, anything. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you're okay with dispatching several actions. Though, uh, if you kind of think about it, that's, that, that sort of looks ugly in the code. It's like calling the same function, you call the store dispatch like four times. I guess someone not really familiar with NGRX, why they are calling these functions like four times in a row? 
doesn't really make sense. So I guess it's a nice rule also from the perspective of, of the code. Like, yeah, you just dispatch one action. Like, why are you dispatching four actions uh, in a row? Right. right. <laughs> so the other question I have is, let's say that my team is using NGRX and we're sitting there thinking, and I'm going to throw out an example. And this is an example from code at, at my job in Rails. Yeah. But there was a guy on our team and he doesn't work with us anymore, but he had this uh, this deal where all of the methods in our uh, classes, you know, in Ruby, had to be alphabetized, right? So he yeah. he decides, you know what, all all of the um, reducers and all of the selectors have to be alphabetized, and so I want ESLint to come in and say, hey, these aren't alphabetized, so I'll, we're going to write a rule for ESLint that says they have to be alphabetized. How much work is it to write a rule like that? Well, if you think about that in the context of JavaScript variables, I guess I don't think you can alphabetize selectors if they are using each other. Like, uh, like in an example that I said, if you are combining a user list with the order list and you're creating <coughs> something that is called all the data, uh-huh. all the data should come before the user list uh, and the, the other one. So I think, uh, so I think you. Probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> okay. Uh, about, about let's let's pretend that tech, technical requirements yeah. aside, let's say that I wanted to write a rule. That uh, that's what uh, I'm asking. You know. Okay. So if okay. I if I wanted to add a rule to my ESLint stuff for NGRX, I mean, what, what are we looking at here? I believe that if you are talking specifically NGRX, you probably couldn't alphabetize the reducers uh, right. because oh, why? Because we have, uh, we are using the on function. So, mm-hmm. oh no, I guess, no, I, I guess we can't. I, that. No, my, my question is specifically that, yeah, about just them. writing rules. So, if, if I wanted okay. to write a rule just for whatever, right? Not alphabetizing, but just. I believe there I, are already rules. Uh, ah, you mean ge- rules in general? Well, it, it, rules again, in general. It depends a lot. Yeah, it depends a lot on a kind of a rule. I think, for example, there are rules that require. For like, if you're writing a comment, you you need to put a space after the, uh, yeah. the slash, right? So it's a it's a really simple rule. Like your parsing, uh, there is this parser. ESLint provides all every API you need to write a rule. Mm-hmm. So I haven't written a, a rule personally, but I went uh, through the NGRX through that plugin source code, and some of the rules were fairly simple. It, it provides you with the reference of the AST parser, the abstract syntax tree mm-hmm. parser. So it kind of returns you tokens. So essentially, what you need to know is to just know which tokens you need, which is, which I gotcha. is, it sounds, yeah, it sounds simple. It's not really simple, but you need to know kind of lots of things about it, like what, what tokens are there. But if you recognize one token and it's, uh, if the logic you want to perform is a fairly simple one, like you, you get the comment token, like the example I mentioned. Then you look for the next token, and you expect for it to be a space. It's not a space. You just throw an mm-hmm. error. Uh, it provides the iPad throw this error uh, and whatever with the message. Yeah, it will work. But of course, some of the rules uh, that we talked about today were like fairly abstract, like the don't dispatch multiplication. Mm-hmm. It actually involves checking several different types of code. Like yeah, it's fairly simple to see that. Let's say there are two commands and both are stored dispatch. Yeah, it's a problem, right? But sometimes mm-hmm. they don't, they aren't written in a row. Like 
there is something like this store dispatch something, then several other lines of code, and then again this store dispatch something, which in a, in a synchronous code doesn't really make sense. Uh, you have to right. check for those scenarios too. So there is some sort of a recursion that you have to go through <laughs> mm-hmm. all, all of that stuff. And also check in the effects that you have the same scenario using switch map, merge map, whatever people use to subscribe to an array of objects, action objects. So it really depends on the rule. If I guess I'm not that big of an expert in writing rules, right. I played with it for a bit. I saw how the AST parser uh, informs you about the next token, the next token to move mm-hmm. through the abstract syntax tree. But it came with a lot of overhead. Like I read that code and kind of makes sense, but I thought, yeah, I really need more context about this to understand what this really does. But it can, uh, for a newcomer, I guess it's writing the rule itself. I don't think it's would be that difficult if it's not a very abstract one, like mm-hmm. you're checking for something really mechanical. Uh, then I guess writing itself when you when you know that stuff is not really that difficult. But knowing that stuff is where it comes with a lot of baggage. Like yeah, you need to know the the tokens that it counts with. You need to know what an abstract syntax tree is. Uh, you need to understand right. how it is found in JavaScript and and so on and so on. Also, there is this problem that some rules can kind of overlap, so you need to careful to really know what exactly you you, you want with that particular right. piece of code. Yeah. So to include this into ESLint, you just yarn install it or yarn at it? Uh, you actually can use the, there is a schematic for it. You can use ng-add ESLint plugin ngrx. There is mm, it, uh, okay. it, yeah, it's in the docs. You can just use ng-add. It will run a schematic. It will add also the RGS rules together with it. And then you can uh, you can just run ngLint once. It will bring all of the nasty stuff. Actually, I believe uh, when you run ngEd, it also asks for kind of level of concern. By default, it throws errors on everything. You can change it to uh, warnings on everything or uh, errors on the important stuff. Well, important in the opinion of the ngRx team. The rules that are important will be thrown as errors, and everything else will be thrown as. Uh, warnings, or you can just put everything as errors and then customize which I did. I put, I don't, I don't like, I don't like winter warnings. I don't really understand uh, the, I mean, I, I guess I understand the purpose. Like, yeah, there's something that you should fix, but you know, you can do that later. But I'm kind of too much of a perfectionist for this. I get there's this problem. Let's fix it. Or, or, yeah, or let's not get a warning for this at least. If I if I think that I will fix something in the future, I will change that in the ESLint RC file and put somewhere a comment or maybe ask them to open a ticket in the backlog to fix something in the future. Just turn it off. I don't need to see that every time if I'm not fixing it. Right. So I, I personally kind of don't enjoy winter warnings. Just give me errors to say this is wrong. Let my CI fail. Whatever. I will spend one more hour. Let's just let's just clean that up. When you have when you have a larger code base, cleaning that stuff up, of course, is, is kind of a challenge. Especially if you if you are the if you are the team lead. I had I had I actually had to work a Saturday and Sunday uh, <laughs> just because I had yeah. those winter yeah when I implemented this, we use NGRX like a lot it's a huge project so it's everywhere okay mm-hmm. it leaks into right. like every file and yeah. when I I believe when I 
and I implemented the NGRX plugin. It came up with like with 700 or something linking errors. And again, some of them oh, are man. really, yeah, some of them are really epic. Like, okay, block scope function uh, in create effects. Okay, it's fixed automatically, whatever. I don't know. Action hygiene, yeah, I can put some uh, source type in, in that string, whatever. That is fixable. Not combining selectors, that's a bit harder. But again, if I have combined latest with the map, I will just write a selector, move it there, delete the combined mm-hmm. latest. Okay, it's done. But when then you have uh, an effect that dispatches five actions, that's a problem. I need, I need to create one action that will substitute those five. And that action type uh, should include in this payload everything that all the other effects need. So it becomes really mental game. Like I need to understand, yeah, this action here needs this, uh, right. data and the other one is this. I have to, so it can take like, like half an hour just, just sorting through one effect. Now we have like 700 of those. And I, and when you are doing this linting change, it's a revolutionary change because, uh, in the end, I had in my pull request, I had something like, 867 or something files changed. And some of the changes are also large. You're adding lots of lines, even if you're just changing like alignment and the indentation mm-hmm. of that, like everything shows us changed, changed, changed. So I really needed for no one to be working on the project so we don't face like lots of conflicts. But that would have been a mess otherwise. So I thought, yeah, let, let's just, if I'm, I'm going to do that, I'll just go work on a Saturday, whatever. And then when I worked on a Saturday, uh, in the end, I realized that I'm not done. So I came in and worked on a Sunday <laughs> too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's yeah. definitely worth that. If you, uh, if you also then, uh, put something like a link staged, uh, commit hook, which we use, it will then link to all the staged files that the developers use and will just throw errors. So you don't need, you don't need, actually you don't need to run linting on a CI. You really don't want that. It will just slow the CI build process down. Better to have just commit hooks. And if you're very concerned, sometimes you can come back to open, let's say the developers run lint if you find some problems. They're going to be minor if you have fixed everything beforehand. So. Uh, it really helped because uh, in most of my, I knew, I knew about some of those best practices. I knew that you're not supposed to dispatch several actions. I knew mm-hmm. that you're not supposed to use combine latest, but developers tend to forget about that. Or maybe they, they put combine latest because it's faster to do at the moment they check it and then they forget to remove it, for example. So for lots of times I saw, uh, that stuff popping down with pull requests and I had to comment and say, can we please fix that? We're not supposed to write code right. like this. Yeah. And then I thought, yeah, we can just automate it. So let's just suffer one day <laughs> so that we can forget about all, all, all of that stuff. Uh, right. Interesting. Because now it fails yeah. the build. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what I, uh, what I like about NGRX, it's, it's large, but it's very mechanical. Like most of the code uh, just works. So you can really make sure that the best practices you do are automatically checked. You don't have to. Like, as I said in the beginning, like an Angular, uh, there is no way you can link and say, oh, you know, this component can be broken down. Uh, sometimes people uh, put arbitrary rules, like uh, a component should not have more than 100 lines of code, for example, right? But that can become problematic because, uh, you know, well, there's this component that does lots of business logic with just one piece of data. You just can't deconstruct it. 
that happens. Right. And uh, yeah, just uh, just making every line red and saying, oh, you're, this component is too big, isn't really uh, like fixing the problem. It's just, you know, I mean, please notice. So here where warnings come. I would prefer something like that to be a warning. But then again, if right. there's a warning, and I know I'm not going to fix that. Why do I need that warning at all? Mm-hmm. So let, let it be an error. I would just, if I know I'm not fixing it, I would just use ESLint disabled or something yep. there. But that's also also an option. Sometimes, uh, sometimes there is no workaround uh, about some of the stuff, even even in the NGRX plugin. Sometimes I just use. Also, uh, if you're on, on the topic, there is a situation when, as I said, there is an example that you are not supposed to call pipe on any observable that you select from the store. Right. So if you write something like dot pipe and map something, something that that's not a good approach. Use a selector. But there is a scenario when we need to access the component state, or maybe call a function as a side effect in the component, some method or whatever. So in that scenario, you will have to use the pipe method, and then you will have to use the ESLint disable next line. Just I just suggest people be really explicit. Mm-hmm. You don't write ESLint disable because after that comment, ESLint won't work on anything. <laughs> so yeah. better approach is to be to use at least ESLint disable next line. But mm-hmm. even that is not the best approach because on the next <laughs> line, yeah, maybe yeah, maybe you you use that ESLint disable next line for one rule, but there's actually another rule being broken on the same line. So I suggest whenever you use uh, disable, ESN disable, just use ESN disable next line and a specific rule. Like I'm disabling this rule for this specific line, nothing else. If there are other problems, please report it. So yeah, ESN provides the opportunity to be really, really specific and flexible with all that. So. Yep. Yeah, that's been my experience too. With most linters, actually, yeah, you want to be as granular as possible, and it's just because, yeah, you can get yourself into trouble. You really do want it checking as much as possible, and then, yeah, just turn it off for the stuff that you know you're not going to fix. And cool. yeah, very cool. So uh, I don't know if I have anything else to to dive into on this. You said you documented a lot of the stuff on the ESLint plugin. Did you look at all of the tests for the plugin or? Oh, I didn't really understand the question. So I'm assuming they also have tests for the plugin ah. for the different rules and stuff. Yeah, sure. Uh, no, I didn't really take a look at the test. Some, most of the rules, the names of the rules were more or less obvious. Some were not obvious, but I knew about them already from articles and uh, and maybe personal experience also. Some of rules, like uh, I guess five of them or six, have been documented. So I just uh, look at how I'm supposed to document this. So there is the explanation, example, incorrect code, example of correct code, links, and whatever. So I kind of followed that pattern. And whenever I didn't understand the rule, I had the luxury of writing to a team and asking, you know, I don't really get right. this rule. Can you please, like, simple terms, explain what it is supposed to do? That's how I understood the the rule about using the block scoped callback function in, in effect because uh, really, really to understand that, Tim just sent me a link to an issue where it has been discussed and there in the discussion, yeah, I got it. And then I understand, ah, you know, so it turns out when I received this ugly error messages from <laughs> in, in, in effect. So 
man, this is avoidable. Where has this information been all the time? Very cool. Nice. Well, it sounds like it's pretty easy to set up and get rolling. And yeah, yeah, my experience is pretty similar to yours. You know, you plug the linter into an existing system and then, yeah, you go have to fix a zillion issues because, yeah, it brings them all up. But yeah, once you're done, then you're good to go. And then from there on, you just get everybody to check their code. You know, you run the linter before you check in. And it's nice because then everything's pretty consistent. Everybody's on the same page as far as what you're doing, following best practices. It catches all kinds of stuff for you. And it's really nice. So yeah, sounds great. I didn't even know that this existed. So something to plug in in the future for sure. Yeah, definitely. I suggest anyone who uses NGRX will benefit a lot from this. Like, lots of headache out of the window like, instantly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Give or take a Saturday and Sunday, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can always take a day off. I didn't I didn't work because I was in a hurry. I worked on a weekend because I thought, yeah, I may I need no anyone to ask me questions and no one to create any pull requests. Just just let me do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then We'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have this situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. You have some picks? Okay. Yeah, I actually watched the Dune movie, which I talked about. I talked about the books on the, on the first time that I came on the podcast. I said that the movie is going to come out. So it's not out in the United States, right? I think. Yeah, it hasn't. The, it, I, I believe it hasn't. The Dune movie, the Dune movie. Oh, Dune. Yeah. Yeah. Nope, it's not out yet. Yeah, but it's out internationally. So I actually watched it. Oh, really? Weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, I saw it in the theater. I enjoyed it. I'm not. I'm not gonna spoil anything. There are people who have, have read. No, the it's out. It's out here. It's out. Yeah. It's so, in the theater uh, here. I yeah. definitely. I definitely suggest anyone to go watch that, especially if you like the books. The spirit of the books is really out there. The team with Denis Vignov managed to capture like the essence and the the whole atmosphere of the books. So if you're a fan of the books, it's, it's a must-see. 
without going into the details, the only thing I didn't like was that they cut off some dialogue, which is understandable, but I would prefer they, they cut out some of the action, left some of the dialogue, because that's what that's what book readers usually enjoyed about Dune. Mm-hmm. The Dune books aren't really action-packed. Like, Herbert used to, like, gloss over action, like, you know, a bunch of people killed uh, each other out there, you know, it's over. Here's the result right. of, the, of the thing, and now they're talking about it, and the dialogue is what's interesting. The action and everything was good. I just thought that maybe they could cut uh, out, like, five minutes of different pieces of action and insert, like, five minutes of some important dialogue that sheds more light on, on, on what's going on, character motivations and stuff. And if you haven't read the book, some some of the uh, plot points become understandable only if you're, like, watching really attentively, if you if you miss like one minute in the movie, then you might think, yeah, why they are doing this? Of course, if you've read the book, you have not, no issue with that. They haven't changed much from the book in the sense that like what happens in the book, if they portrayed it in, in the movie, they did it almost exactly like it happened in the book, which is nice. They did add some minor things, which I think only benefited the movie there was some exposition but you know the book is so like complex you you need some exposition to you know for obviously not everyone has read the books so but in general i enjoyed the movie so if you have the opportunity and and yeah as we just go watch it in 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 a theater imax if possible it's visual effects and it's sound effects and the soundtrack just, just stunning. You really need to like experience that on a big screen if you have the chance uh, to, to see in the theater. I believe it also uh, should be out soon on HBO Max, so you can of course watch that at right. home. I think I think that's what I was seeing was that it was supposed to be coming out on HBO Max or some other streaming platform and it was coming out there in a few weeks or something like that and i think that was the date i was seeing but yeah i went and looked it up and i was like oh yep it's in it's in theater so yeah yeah very cool Uh, actually there was a beef between uh, Villeneuve and the studio uh he wasn't he wasn't really a fan of releasing on on hbo max together with the theatrical release Mm mm-hmm yeah, what he suggested was, you know, I'm the director. I know this is a movie that the watcher should experience in the theater. You need, you need the big screen, you need lights out, you need sound effects on the maximum. Uh, and HBO was like, you know, this, this is a pandemic, so we are kind of have to release it sooner on a digital platform. So I believe they came to kind of an agreement. And I believe part two is getting confirmed because international box offices are doing really good. I think that in two or three weeks, they collected like 100 million. So, and that's before yeah. United States. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I think, I think it was Scarlett Johansson to Disney. Yeah. Over the dual release. And it was because her contract basically said that they would release only in theaters and her pay was stipulated based on theatrical box office sales. And so anyway, it's it's it, it's an interesting I mean, I mean, nobody foresaw the pandemic. So anyway, and I guess Disney wasn't negotiating in good faith over it. Because they were only paying out based on theatrical sales, but Villeneuve didn't have a contract, but he didn't like the idea, so he just went on every social media imaginable and started complaining. <laughs> yeah, well, that's an option. Yeah, he has a right. 
yeah, but yeah, it obviously has that, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and if they really don't like it, they could not hire him to make the next part. I mean, yeah, it's it's always uh, it's uh, there's always give a take. It's really interesting, but yeah, it's funny because when you picked the book way back when, I meant to go pick it up on Audible and listen through it, but I just haven't done it yet. So maybe I'll go wow. watch the movie yeah. and just enjoy it for what it is, and then go listen to the book, and then I can come back and go. Oh, they kind of ruined that part, but the rest of it was good. You know, what, however it comes out. But yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, the movie is just uh, the, the first half of the book. So uh, right. when you go to the movie and there is this cliffhanger, kind of you will be more motivated to read the book. <laughs> so that's also an option. <laughs> oh, there we go. All right. Cool. Well, I'm going to throw out a few picks. Now, for those of you, I've kind of picked these off and on, and I think I'm just going to do a. A regular thing of this. So I learned a new board game last night and I really enjoyed it. So the board game is called Viscounts of the West Kingdom. And it's a little bit of an involved game. You know, board games kind of range from the rather simple games, I guess, which are still kind of fun, right? So, you know, you kind of get the like Quirkle or something, right? Where it's basically your tile has to line up and, you know, match up with the shapes or the colors, you know, in the row you're in or whatever, you know, all the way up to, hey, you can do any of these actions and it gets rather complex. Viscounts of the West Kingdom's on the more complex end of games, right? So if you if you don't like games where you have a whole bunch of stuff to keep track of, this is not your game, right? But if you like the games where there are a whole bunch of different things you can do, lots of ways to win, lots of different strategies you can pursue, th- this is a, definitely the game to play. And anyway, we had a really good time. The reason we played it is that so uh, my buddy and his wife own a game shop. So you can go buy board games over at their store. And they are running basically at a game convention this weekend. They're running a set of tables where people can walk up and sit down and be taught to play one of six games. And anyway, I'm one of the volunteers. My wife and I are volunteering. So it's going to be fun, right? We're, we're basically teaching one of these six or seven games. And Viscounts of the West Kingdom is one of those games. And so, anyway, it, it was a blast. It was super fun. So I'm going to pick uh, Viscounts of the West Kingdom just as one of those games uh, that we really, really enjoyed. I'm also going to pick a book. I think I picked this last week because I was listening to it. I just finished it. It's X by John Bevere. He's a Christian author. He talks a lot about Christian theology in this book. But the thing that really appealed to me in the book is basically the that... Uh, or the thing that I really liked about the book was that they talked a lot about like what you're calling in life and what are you doing and what are you contributing to life and stuff like that. And I, I don't know, there's just something about it that I just really, really enjoyed. So, and it really made me think, okay, you know, what am I doing? Like, what am I contributing to the world? What am I called to contribute to the world? And so I'm going to pick that as well. So anyway, yeah, so those are my picks. And yeah, it looks like Armin dropped off. Uh, we were having some connection issues through the whole thing. Uh, Riverside captures most of this, so probably won't notice any glitches through the recording. But uh, anyway, I'm going to drop off too. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, folks, max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.